Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. So Steve Bannon, he threw down the gauntlet after being indicted on criminal contempt charges back in November. Remember this? for defying a January 6th committee subpoena. He threatened to raise, well, complete holy hell. Remember? This is going to be the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Biden. I'm never going to back down, and they, they, they took on the wrong guy this time, okay? Well, that's what makes the one-time Trump White House advisors move now, well, extra confounding. Because eight months ago, Bannon said that he wasn't backing down, ever. I mean, the wrong guy this time, right? Well, trial dates have a funny way of making people change their minds, shall we say, because now he is, well, backing down, willing to testify before that very committee that he seemed to be mocking and taunting. Now, what exactly changed other than maybe the calendar date? We're going to dig a lot deeper into all of that tonight, along with new January 6th hearing developments. And if Bannon thought his decision to testify now would call someone's bluff at the DOJ, well, he's sorely mistaken because the trial is still happening and it won't even be postponed. A federal judge denied his legal team's request to delay his trial today, and it will start as planned one week from today. The DOJ made clear the charges weren't being filed to try to persuade him to testify someday in the future. No, the contempt was to punish him for failing to testify in the past and saying, quote, this is little more than an attempt to change the optics of his contempt on the eve of trial. And Eve is right if it starts next Monday. And remember, think back to the very reason that he gave for not testifying in the first place. Bannon claimed that former President Trump had muzzled him, really, by asserting executive privilege. Well, now Trump put out a letter waiving that privilege to clear the way for his longtime ally to testify. Of course, it's not actually clear whether there was ever any applicable privilege to begin with, let alone one that would give Steve Bannon some sort of carte blanche to go mute. But as they say, wait, there's more. In another related twist, the DOJ says the FBI interviewed this guy, former Trump lawyer Justin Clark, just two weeks ago. And this man confirmed that Trump never invoked executive privilege over anything that related to Steve Bannon. So did Trump then waive what he never asserted? We'll think on that in just a moment. And meanwhile, it's the eve of another potentially consequential hearing for Trump world. The House Select Committee will seek to directly tie far-right extremists, including groups like the Oath Keepers, like the Proud Boys, who's Members were charged with such a conspiracy to Donald Trump and, of course, his associates. According to the committee aides, the panel will be zooming in on longtime Trump loyalists Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. Now, we know already the Oath Keepers, they've given some sort of security for some of Roger Stone's events. And he's denied, as we've said, knowing any of the plans to storm the Capitol. 
A former Oath Keeper spokesman is now going to testify, we're told, as maybe a key witness tomorrow. Prosecutors say that some Oath Keepers members actually brought explosives to the D.C. area around January 6th and had a, quote, death list. And this committee says it's going to really hone in tomorrow on just how this violent mob all came together. And in their body of evidence, so to speak, members are going to say they will lay out how Donald Trump's tweet as the president of the United States back on December 19th of 2020, that the be there, be wild tweet, that was called some sort of a a siren call to the mob and actually became a catalyst for the violence that we then saw. In fact, listen to member Jamie Raskin and how he defines it. The first time in American history when a president of the United States called a protest against his own government, in fact, to try to stop the counting of electoral college votes in a presidential election he had lost. So could the Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone's testimony that we know happened last Friday Is that going to connect some of these dots for us? I mean, he was at the reportedly heated meeting in the Oval Office that had allegedly had a talk about seizing voting machines right before that tweet was sent out. A source familiar with the testimony tells CNN that he was asked extensively about his role in that meeting and also what was discussed. And apparently we're going to even see some snippets of his testimony, the kind that we've seen in other hearings as well. The committee is thought to play some of those testimonial moments in video tomorrow. Now, as for the Steve Bannon drama, shall we say, I'm going to turn to two people with very valuable insight. CNN commentator Jonah Goldberg, who knows Steve Bannon, and Mark Fisher, who has interviewed him several times and written extensively about Bannon's relationship with Donald Trump. He's a senior editor at The Washington Post. I'm glad that you're both here. And Jonah, I want to begin with you because, you know, you don't know him very well, of course, but you have known him either before he was part of the administration for Trump. And I'm just wondering what you think Steve Bannon is doing, like what this game is. Is it a game? He wants to testify now, likely to be in public, right? I mean, surprise, surprise, you want to have a platform, maybe a show. Is it a show or is it a change of heart, do you think? Oh, I think it's a show. I mean, I I don't think people are going to try and turn this into some sort of complex mystery, you know, more layers than a Steve Bannon ensemble. He likes to wear a lot of layers. (laughs) Um, But remember, he he said his own philosophy about how to deal with political warfare, deal with the Democrats, deal with the media, is to flood the zone with, this is a family show, fecal matter. That is his... Thank you for that. That was very nice. Even at prime time. Good for you. Good for uh, you. And that's... That's part of what he's, I think he is doing here. The real test, I would believe that he actually wants to cooperate with the committee in a sincere, good-faith way. First of all, if he wasn't about to go on trial. Mm-hmm. But if he said that he was willing to hand over all of the documents and communications that the committee asked for, text messages, emails, all that. Remember, he, he was deeply involved with a lot of the grifter networks that you know, planned the Stop the Steal thing from the beginning. That's not part of his offer. His offer is to do a live testimony That'll, that will flood the zone with, with various matter that normally hits a fan. He wants to be the fan, and he wants to make a big scene, and the rest of it is all just uh, nonsense. 
a part of me wants to see how many more times you can allude to it and not actually say it. And I, I kind of want to keep going, but I'm going to bring. Don't dare I'm going to. I won't get to you now, but I'm going to bring Mark into the conversation because Mark. You know, before the proverbial hits the fan, let me just talk about the fact that Steve Bannon, first of all, has not agreed, I don't understand, don't think, to actually hand over any documents. But what's curious to me is, remember, he was really persona non grata to Donald Trump at one point. I mean, it wasn't like they left with a bromance intact. And I'm wondering, as a part of this, do you think by Trump sort of putting out there, waiving the privilege that he likely never actually had, sort of a, a final nail in the coffin of that moment to say, no, no, no. You and I, we're not friends. Well, Steve Bannon and Donald Trump uh, talk about gamesmanship. Uh, The two of them have been going at each other for quite some years now. And what's happening here is that uh, Bannon is a way for Trump to kind of push back against the January 6th committee, put Bannon out there uh, knowing that he's there to disrupt things. Bannon has been very clear about this from the start. He's not exactly hiding his motives here. He talks about it on his podcast all the time. He wants to delegitimize the Biden presidency. That was his motive in uh, supporting the January 5th, uh, the January 6th demonstration uh, and in saying that all hell would break loose that day. Uh, And so that's what he's doing now, too. He wants to disrupt this January 6th investigative committee that has been pretty successful at putting on a show of its own and controlling its message and just presenting the public with very carefully curated uh, hearings each day. Uh, He wants this to be his live performance where he can turn things upside down. But the gamesmanship goes both ways, and the committee understands what he's up to, and they want the kind of control that they've asserted over every one of the hearings so far, where they interview people in advance for hours on end and then only pick out the choice bits to present to the public. In fact, Jonah, for you, you look at this issue a little bit in that same vein, as in, you know, on the one hand, it's important to get the messaging out in the sense of here's what happened, here's what led up to it. But you've been pretty critical about the idea of how the actual production has been done, not in terms of the, you know, the the logistics, but the idea of not having this be the invitation for Trump allies to speak more vocally about their stance. I wonder, has that changed over time, given that the people who have testified largely are Trump supporters and allies and part of the administration? Yeah, look, my view on it is I'm very sympathetic to the, the larger aims of the committee, which is to get a historical record out there. Um, I think the idea of a criminal referral is deeply fraught, but we don't need to get into that. Um, but uh, the reason the, the committee is set up in such a way that it gives ample good faith and also a lot of bad faith criticisms to its critics. It is one-sided. Uh, no one testifies to that committee unless the committee knows what the answers to the questions are already going to be. Um, it is not typically how a normal congressional committee is organized. That is not entirely on the Democrats, as, as Trump supporters want to claim. Uh, the Republicans, they got what they wished for. They right. wanted to delegitimize this, and so they got the structure that they thought would work best for them, and it hasn't worked out that way. And so what I always tell people is, look, look, Jamie Raskin and, and Benny Thompson, they're partisan Democrats. And as, when I talk to fellow conservatives, I say, I don't care what they say. I don't care even what questions they ask. I care about the fact, as you alluded to, that virtually every witness except for two or three people has been not just a Republican, not just a conservative, but until basically January 6th, a diehard Trump supporter. These are these people saying it, 
And the only people who could rebut it are the ones pleading the fifth and refusing to cooperate. So, Mark, does that matter to you? I mean, the idea, does that make a bigger impact, the idea of, you know, you don't want to get into being criminally fraught, Jonah, but does it make a difference, you think, to the audience, the consuming electorate, those who I'm assuming the committee wants to persuade at least to understand what happened? Does it make a difference who is the actual speaker? I mean, it's kind of the opposite of killing the messenger. It's importantly putting them in the front row. Well, I think it does make a difference, and I think we're seeing in some of the softening of the support for uh, Trump uh, in the wake of this investigation uh, that there is a, a, a mentality developing among Republicans, among Trump supporters, uh, that uh, this was uh, really a very bad situation on January 6th, that people are not telling the truth about it on Trump's side, uh, and that uh, upstanding Republicans are coming forward and blowing the whistle. And that's been the clear, consistent message of these hearings. Uh, But it does have to be said that uh, there has not been the kind of back and forth, the kind of cross-examination, the kind of uh, hostile witnesses that we generally see in congressional investigations of this sort. And uh, if the public uh, harkens back to not just the Watergate hearings, but many others through history, uh, there is this expectation that there's going to be that kind of confrontation. And we haven't seen that. That may uh, kind of deplete some of the drama that one expects from this kind of an investigative hearing. Or it could mean, gentlemen, that perhaps January 6th is not the Rorschach test it's been made out to be. Maybe the reason there hasn't been this is because, you know, people's eyes actually saw what happened. But more on this later. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Now, once again, we see the select committee changing its hearing schedule with little warning. The last time it did so, we had Cassidy Hutchinson, and she came and her testimony, I mean, stunned so many people, dare I say the nation, So what does this latest change in plan suggest about where the probe could be headed or where it's not as we get new details tonight? That's next. The January 6th committee moved a major primetime hearing expected for Thursday. Now it's going to be next week. A committee aide tells CNN the delay will give investigators time to process the, quote, new and important information, unquote, that they say the panel is actually getting on a daily basis. The news, of course, comes amid Bannon's about face on testifying. And after former White House counsel Pat Cipollone sat for over seven hours of questioning on Friday... We're planning to take to hear at least part of Cipollone's testimony for the very first time tomorrow. Joining me now to discuss is Elliot Williams, Jonah Goldberg still here, and also Miles Taylor. I mean, you're still here. I mean, I'm glad you're still here. And, he's, and this guy is still here. He wouldn't believe. Can't get rid of this guy. Can't get rid of him. I'm a lurker. I'm just kidding. You're here. Welcome. Awkward. I'm glad you're here. Let's just move right on. Elliot, let me ask you this question yeah. because, look, Elliot, the fact that they are moving the hearing date again, I mean, forget all of our schedules. I'm not taking it personally, but they're moving it again. Yeah. This is not the first time we've had a hearing date be moved. Does it say anything to you in terms of reading the tea? I mean, a primetime event to me said something big is going to happen. Right. Is it not going to now? Well, here's the thing. You use the words, Laura, primetime event. Think of how often you see congressional hearings in primetime, and they want to get it right. Think about the fact also that in the last couple weeks we've heard from Pat Cipollone and Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony came out of nowhere. 
um, for the most part. You know, people knew that she was out there, but at the end of the day, it was new, late-breaking information and evidence. They want to get it right. Um, you know, look, I was Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the Justice Department helping sort of to prepare witnesses for hearings, and, you know, Congress thinks about these things a great deal. So I wouldn't read too much into it and would actually think that they'll get a better product mm. by waiting and delaying. Better get it right. I mean, they say, yeah. right, perfection, though, is the enemy of progress, whatever the phrase is. I don't know. <laughs> Some other word. Who knows? So, I'm going to be a tiny bit less charitable than okay. Elliot and just say, and Jonah and I were talking about this earlier, earlier look, congressional committees are uh, an S show. I'll just bleep myself oh my there, goodness. right? I, I've worked on congressional committees. They can be really difficult, right? The committee is doing a great job publicly bringing out its very polished intelligence. But behind mm-hmm. the scenes, these things are fly by the seat of your pants, last minute, and put on top of that what Elliot said, which is this is in prime time. But there's a second more important factor here that Elliot alluded to, and that is, look, at the end of the day, the most significant takeaway from these delays is that the new people are coming right. forward. Mm-hmm. A year and a half after January 6th, the fact that new people are coming forward tells you many things, but it also tells you they are having an effect, not necessarily on swaying the masses, not necessarily on having a huge impact on whether Trump will run again. They're having an impact by scaring the people around Donald Trump. Those people now want to come forward because they're getting worried about what they're hearing. Well, does it make him a martyr, though? I mean, in a, in a way, I'm thinking about Steve Bannon, for example. And I, I hear your point, absolutely. But, Jonah, the idea of if you're saying, hey, I'm willing to testify, I want to do it publicly, and they shoot you down, is that that kind of productive for this committee, for those same reasons? Um, I think you can actually make the argument that maybe, like, people, it's certainly going to be a talking point on the right. right. Oh, they're afraid to let Bannon, yep. you know, do his thing. In a counter, in a, it, it, there's sort of a counterintuitive thing here. I completely understand and kind of agree with you on one level that, that when you say primetime event, you think, okay, you know, it's like the Oscars. They got it down to a T. But in a sort of counterintuitive way, the fact that they keep doing this now kind of lends itself to the drama of a reality show in the sense like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? Twists and turns. Mm. Because it makes it more unpredictable. The Cassidy Hutchinson thing made it seem like more of an unfolding event in real time. And that probably keeps people's attention to this. Got to remember, a lot of people determined, a lot of people, you know, I mean, Tucker Carlson refused to take a commercial break for the first hearing because he didn't think it deserved any attention whatsoever. And now there are a lot of people on the right who are paying attention. Some are hate-watching it. Some are mad. Some are screaming at the TV, you know, um, like it's pro-wrestling, but they're watching. And I think that this sort of zigzagging, you know, thing does probably speak to a lot of internal turmoil at the at the committee and a lot of new facts coming at them fast, but it also keeps people's eyes tuned. Can we take a minute to just embrace the cleverness of Steve Bannon for a moment? And no, but really... No. Put, no but, Actually, no. No, but here's the thing. He put the committee in an interesting position because, number one, they, if they put him on in a live hearing, they're not going to, or may not, right? But if they put him on a live hearing, he turns into a circus about the deep state and all kinds of conspiracy theories and so on. If they don't, he can claim, uh, as Jonah had said, that, well, now they're silencing us and they're not letting me t- speak. And this, is, this was just a one-sided kangaroo court from the beginning. So they have, it's not a reality show per se, but they, they have some, uh, some gamesmanship here to yeah. figure out how to sort of win this back um, uh, or win it, uh, this you, dispute with Bannon. But you yeah. can't have it both ways. It strikes right. me, people are saying, listen, there's not both sides represented. There's not other people able to testify. 
And they say, hold on, this is not a criminal proceeding. You can't treat it as such. If it were a courtroom, I would agree. You'd have to have, I mean, at least the defense would put on their case, right? They have that due process element of it. This is not that. Can they have it both ways, Miles, in the sense of saying this is not supposed to be a criminal proceeding and then also demand the same requirements of due process and the idea of a, of a robust defense? Even, of course, they have their chance. McCarthy said, pull everyone out. Leave just who he calls the rhinos. Well, look. When it comes to Bannon, I'd say this. He had his shot. He should have come and spoken to the committee when he was subpoenaed to come speak before the committee. He didn't respond to that you know, subpoena. He's being prosecuted for it right now. To do the showman thing, which is what Steve Bannon is, he's a showman at the last minute, seems far too exploitive of the process. It seems like he's trying to get TV time. And besides, he hasn't sat down with the committee. Everyone we've seen testify, to my knowledge, has first met with the committee behind closed doors so they could understand cross-examine them, compare that with other information. For Bannon not to do that would be a mistake on, on the committee's part, and it wouldn't serve the public. So I think at a minimum what they need to do is have a conversation with him behind closed doors and see what they find. But again, we're, we're in like the buzzer shot period of the public hearings of this committee. So I, I think it's you know, disingenuous for him it to come would have been a better way. It would have been a better gambit if it didn't coincide with him desperately trying to delay his trial. Right. right. The trial's on, <laughs> I mean, the trial is on Monday. The yeah. idea of, the, not the 11th hour, this is happening, and it's still going to happen, by the way. And I still wonder, is this Trump by essentially saying, no, you can go ahead and t- talk. Is that his last sort of screw you on right. this? And it, but it doesn't change the fact that he's been charged with criminal contempt. For his past not, behavior. For his past behavior. Right. So whether he shows up here or not, that doesn't change the fact that, number one, he still owes them documents. And number two, didn't come in when they wanted him to, to, to come in last time. So, right, it's all a ploy. Um, I was teasing about the cleverness thing. It's sort of sinister <laughs> cleverness. But at the end of the day, it's all a stunt. And, and, uh, We're all you know, aware of sarcasm at yeah, this we are. table. Thank you. It was crazy enough to work. Thank you so much. It was crazy enough to work. Like this panel. Stick around, guys, everyone here. okay? and and join CNN's Drew Griffin for a new investigation into Steve Bannon and his master plan to reshape the U.S. government and the Republican Party. The CNN special report, Steve Bannon, Divided We Fall, begins Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Now, coming up here with the committee with trying to establish a connection between the extremists and the Trump White House leading up to January 6th, I'll be joined by a former Homeland Security secretary. I wonder if she thinks the government is doing enough to try and stop more bloodshed. We'll ask her next. Tomorrow, the American public will learn more about the role that right-wing extremists played in the January 6th attack. Since that day, the domestic terror threat has, frankly, only grown. And a new watchdog report warns that the Department of Homeland Security could, quote, do more to address the threat, unquote. And it, quote, may not be able to proactively prevent and protect the nation, unquote. Now, few people know the challenges more than my next guest. She was the Homeland Security Secretary during the Obama administration. Janet Napolitano, welcome to the program. I'm glad to have you here, particularly on a night like this. Thank you. Secretary, I have to ask, I mean... You, I remember in 2009, the DHS, under you, issued a report called Right-Wing Extremism, Current Economic and Political Climate Fueling Resurgence and Radicalization and Recruitment. That was 2009. How has things, have things changed to date? Is it worse in your mind? Oh, it's worse. Uh, the threat of domestic extremism has grown. It's metastasized. Uh, It's, if anything, become more well-organized. 
Uh, I think the role of social media in this process can't be overestimated. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily difficult problem. You know, in that vein, I think about the idea, sometimes you see commercials for like Meta or Facebook talking about find your people, the idea of people being able to find one another, not to suggest that they're the reason for this, but the role of social media in particular. I mean, there are these private and encrypted chat rooms that are popping up all around. In fact, Enrico Tario, who is the Proud leader, Proud Boys leader, was communicating in an encrypted group. And I'm wondering what sort of threat that poses for DHS and trying to tap into it is it an overwhelming burden to try to figure out where to go next then? Well, it's certainly uh, difficult, um, and it requires an extraordinary amount of a kind of resource intensiveness uh, to monitor what you can on social media. Uh, it also uh, requires uh, really good coordination with local law enforcement with other community groups, people in the general citizenry. You know, everybody has a role to play here. Uh, but uh, these groups, like I said, they've just grown and metastasized over the last decade. Secretary, when I hear sometimes the, uh, the phrase of everyone has a role to play, and given the idea that there has to be that symbiotic relationship between local government and, of course, federal, I wonder at times, is DHS even prepared? I mean, if it's a patchwork, state by state, for example, of how one deals with the issue, it feels like a losing game. It's, it, uh, look, I'm not going to uh, you know, say it's easy. It's not. It's very, very difficult. Uh, what uh, DHS has to do is uh, monitor as best they can and coordinate as best they can. But we live in a big country with lots of uh, players in it, in the law enforcement realm, in the community realm. Uh, it's, it's just very difficult. Um, you know, we started a campaign when I was secretary, See Something, Say Something, uh, which was designed to get every citizen uh, acculturated to the notion that everyone has a role to play here. And the stakes are very high. Uh, these uh, extremist groups, you know, are uh, trying to undermine our country, trying to undermine our democracy. That's what we saw on January the 6th. So uh, uh, it's a very serious homeland security issue. Secretary, part of me wonders if people have taken that so literally and in a different, different way to see something, say something, because part of the extremist groups, they are very vocal about the things they believe in. It has the idea of political division, and they're saying things in a way that is either enticing others to join and act out their political dissent in ways I think was not contemplated when people spoke about the freedom of speech and the First Amendment and redressing grievances and trying to use the government as a way and vehicle to do what people want for representation purposes. Do you wonder how to make and how the DHS can navigate this really sort of in thread a very difficult needle about, on the one hand, people being proactive and speaking out and then holding them to account for when they go too far? Right. And that's really uh, one of the chief challenges, which is that, uh, you know, freedom of speech is protected in our country, but acting out on that speech to commit acts of violence, to uh, form conspiracies and, and the like, that's not protected by the First Amendment. That's where judgment comes in and judgment by the department, by the FBI, uh, by others who are charged with protecting the security of our country. Well, Secretary Napolitano, thank you.
Nice speaking with you. You bet. Thank you. Look, the committee says it's planning to zero in tomorrow on kind of what we're talking about today. This one meeting that took place in the Oval Office a couple weeks before the insurrection. And they're going to spotlight one specific tweet sent out by then-President Trump that one member referred to as the quote-unquote siren call tweet. Taking you to the key parts of the timeline, next. The January 6th committee is trying to draw a straight line between the White House and violent extremists. To see how they might, we have to go back to December 2020. That month began with Bill Barr saying publicly that there was no widespread fraud. The same day, Georgia Republican Gabe Sterling issued this warning. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. Well, in the weeks that followed, the Stop the Steal movement picked up steam, with rallies across the country, many of them turning violent. At one rally in particular, December 11th, right here in D.C., we know Enrique Tarrio was in the crowd. The Washington Post reports that he met with longtime Trump ally Roger Stone there. Now, Tarrio is the head of the Proud Boys, and he's facing serious, seditious conspiracy charges. While he and Stone were reportedly meeting, we know that another extremist leader was coming up with some kind of a plan. Stuart Rhodes, founder of the Oath Keepers, is also charged with that same thing. And that same day, he wrote his fellow Oath Keepers that if Joe Biden became president, quote, it will be a bloody and desperate fight. We are going to fight. That can't be avoided, unquote. Now, the next day, Tario posted a picture of himself at the White House. The administration would say that he was just there on a public tour. But we know within the executive branch, Donald Trump was open to more fringe ideas, shall we say. On December 14th, he met the DOJ leadership and pushed extreme ideas like appointing a special counsel and maybe even seizing voting machines. Mr. Donahue, can you explain what the uh, president did uh, after he was told that the Justice Department would not seize voting machines? The president was very agitated. Well, he would still be agitated days later because when the DOJ wouldn't do it, Folks like Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn and Rudy Giuliani were in the Oval Office pushing many of the same ideas. One of the things that people are going to learn is the fundamental importance of a meeting that took place in the White House uh, on December the 18th. And uh, on that day, the group of lawyers, of outside lawyers who've been denominated Team Crazy by people uh, in and around the White House, uh, came in uh, to try to urge several new courses of action, including the seizure of voting machines around the country. White House Counsel Pat Cipollone, he was in that meeting, and we know he told the committee just how insane the meeting was. A few hours later, Donald Trump was on Twitter, calling for his supporters to come to Washington on January 6th and promising it will, quote, will be wild. People are going to hear the story of that tweet and then the explosive effect it had in Trump world and specifically among the domestic violent extremist groups, the most dangerous political extremists in the country. 
And many of the same people who were in that December 18th meeting, folks like Michael Flynn and Rudy Giuliani, they'd also be at the so-called war room that was at the Willard Hotel in the days before January 6th. Now, you'll remember Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, he wanted to be there with him. Mr. Meadows had a conversation with me where he wanted me to work with Secret Service on a movement from the White House to the Bullard Hotel so he could attend the meeting or meetings with Mr. Giuliani and his associates in the war room. Also there, Roger Stone, who had the Proud Boys were his security for him, apparently on January 6th. Then Steve Bannon, who famously offered this preview of January 6th. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. I see a trend with the word hell. But so how important is that timeline and tomorrow's testimony from the former Oath Keepers spokesman? Well, look at that and newly revealed evidence, including an alleged death list that was kept by another Oath Keeper. When CNN Tonight returns. New insight tonight about the witnesses expected at tomorrow's January 6th hearing. Sources telling CNN at least one will be a rioter from the insurrection. Stephen Ayers, an Ohio man who accused Joe Biden and other Democrats of, quote, treason, pleading guilty to entering the Capitol last month. We're all expected to hear from Jason Van Tatenhove, a former spokesperson and self-described propagandist for the Oath Keepers. It's testimony like that which will be crucial for investigators working to establish some link between the Trump White House and domestic extremists who helped lead the mob into the Capitol that day. Elliot Williams, Jonah Goldberg, and Miles Taylor are all back with me. Yes, Jonah's still here, so there you go. Oh, man. <laughs> Tough crowd. I'm, I'm glad you're all here still. I'm just winking at you, Jonah, for that uh-huh. reason about it. But you know what? Listen, it's a, it is a very big ask that you're going to be able to convince the public that there's a link between extremists and Donald Trump. Remember the Michael Cohen phenomenon of the idea of he wasn't particularly, you know, explicit about saying instructional things, you do this. Listen to this. Remember this? That's how he speaks. He doesn't give you questions. He doesn't give you orders. He speaks in a code. And I understand the code because I've been around him for a decade. And it's your impression that others who work for him understand the code as well? Most people, yes. Okay, Elliot, I mean, it works for Michael Cohen, a decade of Uh knowledge. But how about the Oath Keepers, Uh the Proud Boys? Arguably, they haven't been following him, obviously, as the President of the United States for for 10 years. He hasn't been, he was not the President for that amount of time. Is that convincing for somebody other than Michael Cohen if you're trying to bridge that gap? It's tough. Look, you know, Laura, you know well, there's basically two rules to being a prosecutor. Don't wear bright colored jewelry in front of a jury. And criminal intent is hard to prove. And, and proving, I broke the jewelry broke rule the jewelry all the time. Well, I was vibrant, my vibrant, friend. Vivacious and charismatic. This guy, go ahead. This guy, no cufflinks in front of a jury. But here's the thing. Um, and criminal intent is hard to prove. And linking someone that he intended to carry out in action is just difficult to do. Now, look, the crime itself of seditious conspiracy is using force to prevent hinder or delay the execution of any law of the United States. You've got that for all the, the, the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys that are charged. 
proving that the president conspired with them, agreed with them, met with them is just challenging. And that link. Now, the committee is teasing that this um, January, uh, the December 18th meeting, some there might have been some conversation where they were aware in the White House of what the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers were going to do. But that link is just going to be challenging to prove for charging the president with the crime. Now, look, even if you can't charge him, it's disgraceful conduct. And let's be clear, it should never have happened by any elected official in the United States, but it just may not be criminal. Well, Tony, you're nodding your head because the disgraceful part of it, part of the committee's goal, it seems to be, the, I don't think I'm stretching the truth here when I say that I interpret their behavior to mean they're trying to essentially disqualify him in the eyes of the electorate. Right. This is somebody who should not be the president of the United States. Is that convincing if they have to bridge that gap? Because you have Michael Flynn, by the way, Roger Stone, who know Trump more than, say, the Oath Keepers or Proud Boys over the last several years. Yeah, I get sort of uh, impeachment flashbacks during a lot of these kinds of conversations because during impeachment, you had a lot of lawyers. You know, I'm not a lawyer. I can still see my reflection in the mirror. Um, oh, <laughs> hey, what? You've been, you've been oh. talking about me like I'm fine. Oh. You've been talking about me like I'm some rat okay. that won't go away. Goldberg and chooses <laughs> And as I said, Jonah Goldberg, for some reason, is still here. I rest my case. <laughs> no, but uh, like... I, I, there are lots of people who want, you know, Alan Dershowitz would always come in and say, this doesn't meet this criminal standard, that doesn't meet that. And political impeachment, impeachments are political acts, not criminal court proceedings and all that. This is not a criminal courtroom. Right. And the goal of it should, I mean, I would like the goal, I would like the consequence of it to be disqualifying Trump from public office and all of that. But the, the aim of this should just be to lay out the record. And I think you're absolutely right. If they overreach and try to beat the benefit, you know, the, go beyond the reasonable doubt kind of thing. Right. All he has to do is prove, which I think is sort of obvious, that this was foreseeable, given the advice he was getting from Team Crazy that he was surrounding himself with. He rejected people who told him things he didn't want to hear and brought in, you know, the cuckoo birds, you know, like <laughs> Sidney Powell or whatever, who told him exactly what he wanted to hear. And Roger Stone and these guys invited these people. They laid out these predicates. He said, get rid of the magnetometers, even though we knew they were armed. Yeah. And just let America collect the dots. You don't have to hammer down all those dots. So lead lead a horse to water, don't dunk its head in to drink. Good point. At at the risk of siding on the non-lawyer side of the table and against y'all, I'd I'd say this. (laughs) It's a huge risk right now, Miles. Maybe there's a criminal case to be made there. I wouldn't know anything about it. But the common sense case to be made is, of course, Donald Trump has links to violent extremist groups. I mean, I'm not Nostradamus, but a year before the election... I said, if he loses, this thing is going to end tragically because he's already been seeding the narrative of violence, coups and civil war. But take the timeline even further back than that. In the first year he was in office, my old boss, John Kelly, we all remember him after Charlottesville, lowering his head when the president was trying to give the extremists a pass by saying it was really both sides in that domestic terrorism attack. In year two of the Trump administration, Donald Trump ignored the rising domestic terrorism numbers we showed to the White House and didn't want to do a strategy. In year three, you had a terrorist attack in El Paso where the shooter used his language of an invasion at the southern border. And in the fourth year, you had Donald Trump saying, stand back and stand by to the Oath Keepers. And in 2021, the fifth year, you had uh, a terrorist attack on the United States Capitol. Let's be clear, I don't say that lightly. This was a domestic terrorism attack, a homeland security event that has a very clear pattern, starting with the president's permissive attitude towards domestic extremists, 
all the way to potentially people on his team coordinating with those associates of those violent. You know, also watched you know, unfold on TV and didn't stop we, for yeah, over three exactly. hours. But you know what? You know, uh, you actually might be a lawyer and you don't even know it because you just laid out a perfect argument for civil suits against the president. Because, you know, the middle ground, we're talking about crimes on one end and political consequences on the other, but the middle ground is civil suits where somebody sues the president. And the same theory for going after the planners of an event or rally happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, just um, with the Unite the Right rally, where people who planned weren't necessarily the ones carrying out the violence, but were able to be sued in civil suits here. That argument is moving forward in courts now, and you know, police officers, members of Congress who were injured uh, in, or harmed in some way are bringing suits against the president. Even if you're not going to see uh, criminal charges, you're going to see And by the way, they're bringing suits against some who are, or at least the sitting members of Congress, are at least part of the conversation not just the former president of the United States, but what about sitting members of Congress? I mean, we haven't heard heard enough in my mind about who is still there, who may have had a hand or a role. There's been a focus, and it seems almost singular at times, against Donald Trump, but he did not act alone to send me. There were people who were calling back and forth if he acted at all. Are we going to hear more? Do you want to hear more about members of Congress? Or is that sort of the, the, the beating of the dead horse to send our analogy? Well, this, this is one of the reasons why we needed a 9-11-style commission, in my opinion. This is so much bigger than a somewhat lopsided, lopsided select committee is going to be able to handle. I mean, the 9-11 commission took years to look into this. Again, 9-11 was a terrorist attack. This really genuinely was, by definition, a terrorist attack, and it needs that more thorough review. I am worried that by the time we get to the end of this, we actually won't have a complete picture. I do think we've got a lot more information than we had a year and a half ago, but we won't because of the resistance we saw from the GOP uh, to end up creating that type of full-fledged commission. Elliot Williams, Jonah Goldberg, and Miles Taylor, and just for the record... We have seen our reflections as lawyers, and I like mine. Thank you so much, everyone. I'm giving you a hard time, but what a great conversation to have all of you here. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Today is especially sweet. It is my birthday today, and it's my 42nd year. I'm calling it my Jackie Robinson year, so I encourage you all to follow his logic when he says a life has no meaning unless it has a good impact on others. So I challenge you all, and happy birthday to me to have an impact in the best kind of way. I'll be back on Wednesday night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.